Well, it's so good to, uh, to worship together. Um, we need this, church. We were created for this. Um, we need to be together to worship. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord in your hearts. Um, when we gather to worship, we gather to fix our eyes on Christ to worship Him. Uh, and yet as we sing, we, we're addressing one another. We're proclaiming the glory of God together, and that ought to fuel our faith. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. Kids, you can head off to children's ministry. Um, your teachers will meet you downstairs and, uh, and, and are eager to uh, teach you the word. I guess I need to be clear, there is no older class this morning. Melanie had to, uh, had to go be with family this morning uh, up north, so um, she's unexpectedly away. So for the younger kids, the nursery, you guys can head out. Um, while the kids are making their way out, um, turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 uh, is where we find ourselves as we work our way through um, this fantastic book. Um, if you don't have a Bible or maybe you don't have one with you, you forgot it at home, whatever the case, um, put up your hand. Um, one of our ushers will get you a copy of God's Word. We want you to have it open on your lap. Um, I have nothing for you. Uh, I come with no great wisdom. Um, we come together under God's word. Um, we want to see what God has to say. We want to have God speak this morning. Um, and so just invite you to, uh, to follow along as we work through this together. Um, last Sunday, um, I got through preaching and uh, chatting out back. And by the time I got home, I had no voice whatsoever. Um, didn't seem to bother the kids at all. Um, I think they liked it. Um, but it was like Friday night. I was still struggling. Um, so I've got my tea here. Hopefully we can make it all the way to the end. Um, but uh, bear with me if I get a little raspy. We're going to push on. It is a strange thing for me. Um, all of the sudden, it seems like it happened. I'm not used to it. I'm not always, in the, I'm not always the young guy in the room anymore. Um, especially in this church. Uh, I think I fit more among the old guys, which is strange. Uh, I had my 40th birthday this last year. In fact, I'm almost done my 40th year, two weeks from today. Um, I'll be 41. It wasn't a huge deal for me. I've generally been positive about getting older, hopefully a little wiser, gaining a little bit of credibility, getting a little bit of gray coming in, which scripture says is just wisdom growing right out. Um, but it's got me thinking, uh, 40 is right at the cusp, right at the beginning of that kind of midlife crisis range, right? And uh, I can absolutely understand how it happens. Um, I, I'm, I'm old enough now that there's no denying if I'm going to make it big, if I'm going to be broadly successful, um, that, that should be happening by now. Yeah, if I'm going to be wealthy and, and financially successful, that, that train ought to be moving out of the station. If, if my marriage and my family are going are gonna to satisfy me and bring me the, the joy that I had hoped, then, then we should be well underway with that. Um, it made sense over the, the last 20 years um, to, to kind of put your head down and, and slog away and you're working hard and you're looking for the, looking to the future, right? And, and then all of a sudden... Um, the future is here. Um, there's not as much future as there is past. And, uh, and, and it feels like um, 
All those big visions and dreams I have from life, those were, those were exciting and, and wonderful when I had the luxury of looking way ahead to them. All of a sudden, um, I feel like I should be flying and maybe I'm running out of runway. Of course, the flip side of the midlife crisis is just as real. Um, I did have amazing success. I did make the money and marry the prom queen and have um, the perfect children and, and buy the big house and go on these perfect idyllic holidays. And if I'm honest, when the lights go out and I'm left alone by myself, it didn't work. It didn't satisfy the deepest desires in my soul. I feel like there should still be more. There's still something missing. I I got it all and it didn't satisfy. Now what? Whether or not we would describe it this way, the reality is what what we're looking for and expecting is, is blessing in our lives. It's God's blessing. And when it doesn't come, or it doesn't come the way we thought it would, we don't quite know what to do. As we come to the end of Genesis chapter 22, uh, working into Genesis chapter 23, I, I think the, the life and the faith of Abraham challenges us to think about God's blessing a little bit differently. It presses us Um, As we see Abraham here um, entering into his twilight years. The next few chapters um, tell of the death of Sarah, the death of Abraham, begin to shift focus from from this generation to the next. We're kind of on the the, the closing parentheses of the life of the story of Abraham. And we're forced at the end of Abraham's life to think a little more carefully about how we understand God's blessings. And I know you could very easily go out and find many so-called preachers um, who would tell you, just hold on to your dreams, follow your passions, cling to those things, believe in God, and he will give it to you. The perfect marriage, the perfect house, the fuller bank account, the nicer car, it's, it's all there for you to have. You just need to trust God a little more. But as we take a closer look at the death and burial of Sarah, the later days of Abraham's life, We see Abraham still trusting in God's blessing. There's more here. There's something deeper. There's something richer. And uh, so I think it's pretty clear we see here the Lord's blessing is not not always evident. uh, It's not always easy. And it's not always earthly. So look with me. We're going to start just by reading through this um, chapter 22, starting in verse 20. This is the last bit of chapter 22 there. Uh, Follow along as I read. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner, a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went into the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named, and in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights, uh, current among the merchants. And so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, for all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Lord, thank you that all Scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for us. Even these odd passages, God, as we stop and linger to see your hand at work, um, you're there. You have things to teach us. So God, open our, our eyes, soften our hard hearts. God, that we might hear from you. Lord, that we might leave um, transformed by your word. God, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage and strengthen us where we need to be encouraged and strengthened. Lord, that your word would go forth. Lord, that it would accomplish um, what you have set out for it to do. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we see, looking at the end of chapter 22... Uh, is that God's blessing is not always evident. It's not always evident. It's not always visible, clear, obvious. Um, we look at chapter 22, verses 20 to 24. Um, what do we do with this strange list of names? Right? I mean, this is, this is lumped in. This is the same chapter as, as Abraham offering Isaac on the altar, God bringing the substitute, this amazing high point in the life of Abraham. Frankly, who cares about the the names of the children of Abraham's brother. What, what could this uh, have for us? Well, for one, um, there's a little parentheses there in, chapter, in verse 23 um, that, that tells us this, 
one of the sons of Abraham's brother, Bethuel, and Bethuel is the father of Rebekah. Well, if you know the story, um, Rebekah is soon to become Isaac's wife. And so in, in some ways, it's just practical. It's preparing us for what's to come. We see how Rebekah fits into the family tree. But as we see this in its context, and, and the Uh, The last years of Abraham's life, I think it also highlights something surprising. God had promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. To to multiply his offspring like the sands of the seashore. And yet here, as Abraham loses his wife and is coming to the end of his life, God's blessing is not evident. It's not obvious. Children, specifically sons, were were of great importance in the ancient world. A man's prosperity was measured first and foremost by how many sons did he have. And of course, how many sons you have being something you have very little control over was seen as the favor of God. Abraham has one son. There was Ishmael, but Ishmael has been sent away, the the son of the slave woman. He's been disowned as a son. He has only one Isaac, the promised son, but only one. And I don't think it's without significance. Nahor doesn't just have a lot of sons. Anybody count them? Anyone know how many sons he had? Venture a guess. Twelve sons. That seems familiar. Not only just twelve sons, but eight sons from his wife, Proper and four sons from his concubine, his slave wife. Many years later, long after Abraham's death, his grandson Jacob um, would have 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, eight from his proper wives and four from his concubines. There seems to be an intentional juxtaposition of these two families. God is blessing with 12 sons. But, but here, right now, uh, it's Nahor 12 Abraham won. It's embarrassing. It's belittling. This this was supposed to be God's father of of a multitude of nations. He has one son, and that son uh, isn't married, has no children. By worldly standards, by what is visible, apparent, Nahor is richly blessed, and Abraham, not so much. In fact, if you remember, back to Genesis 17, um, even Ishmael, Ishmael that was cast off, who was not part of God's blessing, has 12 sons. But Abraham has Isaac and Isaac alone. God has not gone back on his promise. God has not failed to do what he said he would do. The the mention of Rebekah here kind of points us forward, reminds us that there's, there's more to come. But God's blessing was not immediately evident. It's been a few years since I've been on social media, so forgive me if I'm a little out of touch. Do they still do the hashtag blessed? Does that still show up everywhere, sickeningly? Um, I got a new car, hashtag blessed, right? Out for dinner with my perfect girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, hashtag blessed. Got a raise at work, hashtag blessed. Is that really what blessed looks like? Is is that the the pinnacle of, of blessing? I'm just flip through a couple New Testament passages. Um, let's just take a minute and let, let Scripture speak to what blessing might look like, God's blessing. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 
through verses 3 to 6, just to grab some snippets here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Forward to verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Where where are those in the the Facebook trends? Luke 11.28 Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Romans 4.7 Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Finally, the book of Revelation. 14.13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's so tempting to look for God's blessing in our bank account, in our garage, in our workplace, in our marriage. So tempting to compare ourselves to those around us. He's clearly more blessed than me. Wonder, where is God's blessing? How come I don't have A, B, and C? Don't be fooled looking for God's blessing in all the wrong places. A blessing's not always evident. It's not always visible. It's not always measurable. Secondly, as we work into chapter 23, um, we see God's blessing is not always easy. It's not always easy. Um, I'm not going to read the whole text again for the sake of my voice. We're just going to walk through it step by step. So just kind of track along. We begin with Sarah, this princess in the faith, uh, finally passing away. The ripe old age of 127. Her son Isaac would now be 37 years old. Um, He would not be married for another three years or so, but um, she lived to see him grow into, into manhood. Abraham would live on for another 38 years. Um, But the fact that Sarah uh, is the only woman in the Bible of whom we're told of her her lifespan, um, that gives us a sense of her importance, her significance here. After a period of mourning and weeping, Abraham uh, gets up and and he went to the local Hittites on whose land they've been living and sought to buy a piece of property for the burial. And even though Abraham and Sarah have lived now in the land of Canaan for 62 years, verse 4, Abraham says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner. Those are legal terms. They've been living within the borders of the promised land, but they are outsiders. They don't belong here. They're not locals. Abraham didn't own one stitch of property in the land of Canaan. And as a, as a foreigner, as a, a nomadic herder living in tents in the land, um, they had very little legal rights, very little protection under the law, no, no claim on that place at all as their home. It's a little bit tricky. We kind of are trying to read between the lines and figure out the dynamics of, of Hittite and Canaanite law, looking to find the context to really understand what's going on here. Um, and, and we can't get too precise or too dogmatic, but it seems like the Hittites' response to Abraham uh, is a bit disingenuous. It's not quite as kind and generous as it might seem at first. Verse 6, you'll see the kind of the formal nature of this 
conversations. It says they, they bow and this, you know, listen to me phrase is kind of a formal introduction. Um, the Hittites politely say to Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to bury your dead. Um, that phrase, prince of God, um, it is the word Elohim there, but the word Elohim actually has a fairly broad meaning. Uh, it means mighty or strong. And so in some contexts, it means the strongest. It means God. Uh, it could possibly be you're a, you're a mighty prince here, a prince of might. Um, but either way, it's a nice thing to say, but it seems like their motivation is, is flattery because the offer they make following is a little bit underhanded. Uh, again, we're, we're trying to put pieces together of ancient law practices, but it seems that um, with Abraham as a sojourner and a foreigner, um, he has really no rights, no protections, no privileges under the law. But the minute he became a landowner, that would change. His status in the country would be elevated. He would become a, someone of influence. And so this seemingly generous offer to bury Sarah in one of their tombs uh, is very likely an attempt to, to put on a show of being gracious while ultimately keeping Abraham from purchasing land. They'd like him to remain as a foreigner. Verse 7 begins the second round of this kind of offer and counter-offer. Abraham now gets specific. If you're indeed generously willing to, to let me bury my dead as you say you are, then talk to Ephron. Ask him about the, the cave of Machpelah. I, I will buy it for full price. Ephron then answers with this counter-offer, verse 11. Now, I will, I will give it to you free of charge. It's, it's yours. Just go ahead, take it. You can have it. The suspicion here um, is that there's, again, evidence in some of these law codes that, that when a land is sold for under market value, or if it's given as a gift, if the family who gave it then came under financial stress, um, financial hardship, they, they could petition uh, and, and potentially have it returned. Uh, a, a gift can be revoked. It can be taken back. And so, at very least, this would put Abraham uh, in his debt. When you ask the question, how did Abraham get his first piece of land uh, in Canaan, the answer would be by the generosity of a Hittite. And, and Abraham won't have that. And so the third cycle of offer and counteroffer follows. Verse 13, Abraham declines that gift and he asks for a price. What's it worth? Ephron plays a bit of a kind of, a, it looks like a a tactical bartering game here. Um, rather than just give Abraham a price, he continues with this kind of generous facade. Oh, a little, a little field of, of 400 shekels. What's that between you and I? And so he's kind of putting on as if he still wants to give it to him, but he is naming a price. And as we kind of look through Scripture, uh, I mean, there's a long stretch of years here, but I think it's noteworthy. David bought the entire temple grounds for 50 shekels. Jeremiah bought a plot of land for 17 shekels. It seems that 400 shekels is an absorbently high price. This is through the roof. This is, this is verging on extortion, if not well into it. And, and so it was probably to Ephron's great surprise when Abraham doesn't 
return with a lower offer, a counteroffer. This was a, a bartering culture. That's what you did. That's just how it worked. Um, Abraham doesn't barter. He just says, sold. And he starts counting out the shekels. Right there in front of the eyes of everyone, Abraham bought this first piece of land in the land of Canaan. Now, this is significant. It's significant for a number of reasons. First, it's significant because ancestral burial grounds were a big deal. That was part of their their custom. You would be buried where your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were buried. That was the thing to do. That was what was expected. That was considered honorable and right. When Sarah died, not only is Abraham now crushed with the loss of his beloved wife, but it only makes sense that he would be stopping to consider again God's promises. What do I do here? What now? This would have been a really easy moment for Abraham to say, well, I guess that's the end of that. When we trusted, we waited, we, we did our part, we hoped in God, we got, we got Isaac, but, but we have no land. And I have to bury my wife with her family. Clearly, this, this just isn't happening. It's not playing out. As a foreigner, a sojourner, it would have been totally expected that he would travel back to the place of his birth, to his family home, to bury his wife there. The Hittites would have expected that. His family, Nahor, his sons, they certainly would have expected that. Come back, Abraham. Do, what is, do what's honorable. Don't bury your wife in some foreign country. That would be disgraceful. Bring her home. I don't know what you've been doing out there, but it's time to come back. Not only does he refuse to put his tail between his legs and come home, Abraham doubles down. He works hard. He sacrifices to to buy a plot of land inside the borders of Canaan. In the middle of his pain and sorrow, he's hurting. He's broken. His wife just passed away. But he's fixed on, on God's faithfulness. Against all the expectations and pressures of the people around him, people saying, look, Abraham was a nice thought, but it's not happening. This isn't working out. Abraham says, no, my God is faithful. He's trusting in the promises of God. He's doubling down on this blessing that, that is not evident. From the very beginning, Back in chapter 12, God said, go to a land that I will show you. Chapter 15, God said to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. God called Abraham to to leave behind his past, to leave behind his his uh, country and his kindred and his father's house. This this new land was to be the start of of a new family history. And so in faith, Abraham purchases this this small piece of land, this field, and this cave to bury his wife. The words of Kent Hughes, uh, it is a public statement of God's promise against all present appearances. He's declaring by by purchasing purchasing this land, God is faithful. His promise will not fail. That statement of faith, by the way, um, becomes a generational statement We can track this through the Old Testament. 
Verse 19 tells us that Sarah was buried in the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Chapter 25, when Abraham dies, we're told that he too is buried in the cave of Machpelah at Hebron. Chapter 29 of Genesis tells us that Isaac uh, was buried in the same place. Isaac's son, Jacob, father of the, the 12 tribes of Israel, he left Canaan, if you remember, went down to Egypt in the midst of the, the famine because there was food there. And his last words are giving instruction about his body, that it should be taken back to the cave of Machpelah at Hebron. Genesis 50. Verses 26 and 27, the last verses in the entire book of Genesis, Joseph is telling the people of Israel in the land of Egypt, um, God will visit you. That's a significant phrase. It's not just coming for dinner. God will remember you. God will rescue you. He will be faithful. He'll fulfill his promises. And he says, when he does, take my bones with you out of Egypt, back to the promised land. 300 years later, Exodus 13, 19 tells of Moses leading the people of Israel up out of slavery, out of Egypt, carrying with them the bones of Joseph. It's this statement of God's faithfulness. We're going to bury him in the promised land. Numbers 13 and 14, they've traveled across the wilderness, the 12 spies are sent in to, to scope out the land. Uh, as it lists where they go to spy out, Hebron is among them. You think they stopped at the cave of Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah and, and Jacob and Isaac are all buried? And though 10 of those spies came back with a, a bad report and Israel rebelled and they were sentenced to the, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it's 45 years later, Joshua 14, Caleb, one of the two good spies, seemingly uh, miraculously held strong into his old age, 85 years old, he makes this rousing speech to Joshua. He says, I'm as strong now as the last time we went in. Give me this hill country as my heritage. And it says, so Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb. Caleb's going back to Hebron. We're going to take this land and we're going to start, we're, we're going to take Hebron. This little plot of land becomes this significant statement of God's faithfulness. Generations to come. Because in that moment, in the midst of grief and pain and fear and struggle and suffering, Abraham stood firm. Confidence in the, in the blessing of the Lord. He trusted God. And he declared it openly. Trusting in God's blessing is, is not always easy precisely because trusting in God's blessing, uh, God's blessing is not always evident. It's not always uh, as easy as saying, look, see my, see my new car, see my new house, see my easy, painless life. Hasn't God blessed me? Now, God's blessing doesn't always work that way. It's, it's deeper than that. It's fuller than that. But it's not as obvious as that. Do you trust him? Do you believe him when he says, Blessed are those who mourn. That's hard. Blessed are those who are lonely. Blessed are those who are unfulfilled in their job. Blessed are those who wrestle through marital tension. Blessed are those who face the loss of a loved one. 
you trust him? God's blessing comes to us even in times of pain and trial and death. What are the trials you face today? What are the things that that grieve your heart? The things that leave you feeling broken and hurt? Tempt you toward despair, doubt? Will you stand like Abraham? Declare, no, God is good. I trust him. Even when all appearances suggest otherwise. Can you say with, with Job, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. From the outside, that's crazy talk. Job, you're nuts. What are you hoping in him for? Even if I suffer and I'm sick, even if I'm left alone and lonely, even if I'm broke and hungry, I will trust in the blessing of God. Now, I suspect at this point, there's a division beginning to grow. There are some of you who are able to say, yes, absolutely. I can and I am and I will. And there are some who just aren't sure. Maybe you really want to say yes. Maybe you're even saying yes to yourself. But you have this lingering doubt in your heart. There's this catch in your soul. You can't quite seem to get over, can't quite seem to make sense of this. Maybe you feel like yes is obviously the right answer and I should give the right answer, but but is it really true in your own heart? Do you believe it? After all, is it even honest to say, I trust in God's blessing when I can't see that blessing in my life? When my life is just hard? When I'm surrounded by pain and sorrow and brokenness, when nothing is going right, am I just supposed to lie and pretend? Is that what we're doing here? Is this messed up life, is is this God's blessing? Are sorrow and despair actually God's joy? Is that what Christianity is about? We just change the definitions of words so that we can say we're rejoicing when we're actually hurting? I appreciate the struggle. That's, that's honest wrestling. You've got to go there. If that's the hang up in your heart, you've you got, you got to deal with that. Don't bury it down. Don't cover it up. Press into it. It's okay. It's a good question, but it also has a good answer. We're reminded of it by the death of Sarah. God's blessing is not always earthly. It's not always earthly. Look at these last couple of verses Starting in verse 19, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave and all that's in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So here's Abraham burying his wife. She is dead and gone and buried. It's over. And we're tempted to think that the the hope of Abraham has now become futile. This is the point at which it becomes clear that he's been lying to himself. Sarah is no longer there. She will no longer be a recipient of God's blessing. She's dead. And I'm sorry, Abraham, but you're not far behind. Either Abraham's faith is actually folly, and the death of Sarah is proof that his hope in God's blessing is and always has been futile, or 
Abraham's faith is actually great wisdom. And the death of Sarah is proof that his hope of God's blessing is and always has been something beyond what is earthly. And it's that second possibility that the rest of the Bible affirms and plays out for us, specifically Hebrews 11. Um, We've looked at this a number of times in the past months. Um, It's just a a crucial passage for understanding the life of Abraham. Um, I want to read again uh, Hebrews 11, um, starting in verse 8. It says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went out to live uh, in, the promised, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Jumping down to verse 13, says this of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the homeland, the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. These all died, not having received the promises. They died and they didn't get the land. They died and they didn't have a multitude of children. But they died understanding that they were strangers and exiles, not just in the land of Canaan, but on the earth. This is not their home. This was temporary. Abraham understood the promises of God, the blessing of God is not primarily earthly. Now, yes, he believed that God would give him multiple uh, descendants. He believed that God would give his descendants the the land that he had promised. God was faithful to do those things um, to generations down. But, But he also understood that God's promise of a homeland was something more. God's promise to give a place where his people would once again have his peace and his provision and his very presence with them was always part of this grander overarching promise that God would rescue a people out from under the curse of sin, out from under the the brokenness of this world because of sin, back into like where they started, back into something like the Garden of Eden, but better. They were looking for a homeland a city of, of peace and rest and joy, but, but not in this life, not on this earth. The very reason that God's blessing is not always evident and not always easy is because it's not always earthly. Abraham was looking through that earthly promise and seeing the heavenly promise. And so it is with all people of faith. The true, full blessing of God will never be earthly. That's not where our hope lies. And so when we do receive earthly blessings, when things are going well, 
We, we have this opportunity to, to delight in these physical blessings of God, the goodness of God. They are his gifts. We ought to rejoice in them, but our hearts don't rest there. It's not, it's not our ultimate hope. We, we see these things simply as a, as a glimpse of, a, of an infinitely greater eternity to come. It's a road sign pointing forward, right? My, my family and I, we did a, a road trip down to Disneyland last, last year. Yeah. I mean, we saw the sign, Disneyland ahead. I mean, maybe it'd be fun to like get out and take a picture, but we're not staying there. It's exciting. It's good news. We're rejoicing that. It's getting close. We've been driving for a week already, but, but we're not staying there. We want to get there. We want to get to where the road sign is pointing. Christmas afternoon. I don't know about your family. Our family had a massive turkey feast every year. All the trimmings still do. Uh, And as dad is carving the turkey, if you're quick and if you're lucky, you might be able to get in and out and snatch a little piece of the turkey skin off of the cutting board or off of the, the serving platter as it makes its way to the table. It's succulent. It's delicious. Um, it represents the feast to come, but it never replaces the feast. We would never be satisfied with just that morsel. I'm, I'm good now. I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't need the feast. I had that little tidbit off of the plate. No, it, it only intensifies our desire for the feast to come. God does give earthly blessings, but the truly faithful, those um, who are most Uh, even those who are most blessed in this world are are not satisfied with that. They're not distracted by those morsels. Their heart is still set on the feast to come. On the other hand, when we find ourselves in earthly trials, when God's blessing is not evident and is not easy, we face lack and need and hunger and loss, when, when midlife crisis hits and all of a sudden our, our job and our, our circumstances are, are no longer fulfilled with, with hope and opportunity, just disappointment, when sickness and suffering come knocking at the door, when loved ones pass away, we find ourselves nearing the end of our own life, maybe. Just like the, the pleasures of this world never gave us our ultimate joy, the, the suffering of this world can never leave us in ultimate despair. Because our hearts didn't rest there either. Though we we feel the pain of them, absolutely we do. We grieve, we feel the loss and and the sorrow. Those things were never our ultimate hope. It never was the the definition of God's blessing in my heart. And so my confidence in God's blessing can remain as steadfast as ever. And we begin to see the the work of the Lord in the midst of those times. The closeness, the comfort of God in in that place of darkest sorrow. The faithfulness of the Lord, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, the the peace that passes all understanding, knowing that that He is with us. So even in worldly sorrow and pain, we have these these glimpses of the blessing of God that, that come to us in the midst of that. The fellowship, the faithfulness of the Lord in times of trial actually prove themselves to be the better morsels snatched off that that Christmas plate. Um, Don't neglect the value of those seemingly negative emotions. Sorrow, 
lament, godly anger at injustice. All of these, like feeling the the growing hunger in our stomach as we lead up to that Christmas dinner. It makes us long all the more for the feast to come. It makes the, the eating of that feast all the more satisfying. So we say with Job, who in the middle of unbelievable suffering and loss made this declaration of faith, Job 19.25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed yet in my flesh I shall see God though he slay me yet I shall hope in him we take to heart the the words of Paul listen to Colossians 3 1 to 4 if then you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The true blessing of God, the fullness of our, of our joy and, and, our, and our peace and our, our life, it's, it's hidden in God with Christ. We're waiting for his glorious return. That's our ultimate hope. It's eternity with Him. And both our our joys and and blessings in this world and our sorrows and hardships ought to all the more clarify and point us and and solidify our hearts on that, that ultimate hope. That the God who created this world intends to finish what He started. That though we deserve death and hell because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him, he sent his son to die in our place, to rescue for himself a people for his own possession and one day restore a people to a perfect, joy-filled, overflowing feast of eternal blessing. That's the true blessing of God. We're going to close celebrating communion together this morning. Romans, you want to come prepare to lead us in song again. Remembering Jesus on the cross in our place. And as we do, we fix our eyes on him. We set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. That's our hope. Waiting for his return. Our life, our hope, our ultimate blessing is, is there with him, kept for us, awaiting that glorious day of his return.